Welcome to BitFaced. To say that today's guest is a legend would be a gross understatement. In fact, as the prolific writer that he is, he can probably give me a much better word than legend. But if you've been involved in the geek community since the 80s and you've walked into a game store, whether it be video game or role playing game, you've seen the name Forgotten Realms. And tonight in the Bit Cave, we have the creator of Forgotten Realms. Mr. Ed Greenwood. Ed, welcome to BitFaced. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. To start, I want you to take us back to Canada where this all started because Forgotten Realms, these are your stories. These were created out of your experiences. Where does this all begin? <laughs> okay. Let's go back to your childhood, childhood, childhood. Uh, let's go back to 1965-ish in the upscale suburb uh, of Toronto, of North York, which became swallowed by Toronto, called Don Mills um, in Ontario, Canada. Um, I'm a five-year-old kid uh, reading my way through my father's den. And his den, which also has the piano in it, we all have to practice piano on, is crammed full of books. And like all book lovers' dens, he has built his own bookshelves just to fit the height of books so he can cram everything in. So stuff is not in order except by size. So right beside the television that I turn on from time to time to watch the three black and white channels, there are is a novel called The High White Forest by Ralph Allen, a novel of the Battle of the Bulge. And right beside it are all three of the original George Allen and Unwin Lord of the Rings in hardcover, because they're the exact same height. And I'm reading everything in my father's den. And some of them are pulp wartime novels. The nude said no. I mean, I went through... Years of combing through my father's books looking for the nude said yes. I never found it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I would read a book, and if I liked it, I'd go pounding up the stairs as a little kid and say, Dad, Dad, th this is great. Where's the next one? And my father would usually look over at me, sometimes disapprovingly, because sometimes he had, you know, um, radar experts from NORAD in the room to dinner, you know. And here's the little kid with spectacles bump, bouncing up and down, going, Dad, 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 oh, who trails? She was staked out nude in the sun to die. You know, and, you know, he'd say, uh, son, if you want the next one, you're going to have to write it yourself. That writer died in 1936. I go, oh, okay, Dad. And I go pounding downstairs and I'd start writing something. Something terrible. Something I'm very glad never got seen publicly. But I was learning to copy bad writing and good writing. I was learning to copy style, and I love certain styles, like Lord Dunsany, who was a, a fantasy, a lyric fantasy writer. And just about that time, Lynn Carter started republishing uh, in Ballantyne all the great classics of fantasy. So I was reading them, and I was reading my father's pulps, and I was really enjoying stuff. And I was writing stories for myself. And I came across in the pulp magazines 
Fritz Leiber's Fawford and the Grey Moser. And these were in issues of Fantastic Stories magazine. And they were just episodes in the life of this pair of swashbuckling superheroes, a sort of mutton Jeff Conan. And they, they were just complete stories. But if you read through enough issues of the magazine, you realized, oh, these are the same guys. And they're traveling around in a world. And there's a little bit of the world visible over their shoulders in every book. So I decided, because there weren't enough of them, to write my own. I didn't want to copy Fawford and the Great Mouser because I figured I could never do as good a job as the guy who created them. So I made up my own character. And his name was Mert, Mert the Moneylender. And he was a combination of Falstaff from Shakespeare, Nicholas Van Rynn, um, from Paul Anderson's Poslotechnically science fiction stories, you know, the, the wily old space trader, and the drunken engineer Glenn Cannon from Guy Gilpatrick's Glenn Cannon stories. So I sort of molded these guys together into this one fat, wheezing merchant with floppy boots and food stains all down his belly, and he can no longer outrun his foes, and he can't outfight them either, although in his youth he was sort of a, you know, thinking man's Conan. Um, but now he's like, oh, huh, huh, oh, where, where, where's the next? Give me some wine. you know. And he's one of those guys. And at the end of every story, he leaves town in a hurry, one step ahead of the authorities and his business rivals and the people he swindled in the story. So he's moving from port to port along a fantasy coastline. A year later, I figured out this was called the Sword Coast. And a year after that, I figured out the Sword Coast was in this place called the Forgotten Realms. And it's forgotten because we here on Earth have all these legends of dragons and vampires and cockatrices and basilisks and stuff, but we don't see them walking the streets every day. That's because we used to be closely linked to this medieval come Renaissance fantasy setting and things bought through the gates all the time. But we have forgotten on our side how to get to the gates, how to open them. And in part, that's because there are several secret societies now controlling those gates. But that was the Forgotten Realms. This is all before there's such a thing as Dungeons and & Dragons. And there's before there's role-playing games. With the exception of something called Kriegspiel, which was I was in, um, familiar with because my father does military stuff. And Kriegspiel was a German officer training thing, which was basically practicing command by having people running messages from room to room with people who could not have contact with each other except through the message runners. Um, young American guys usually know this game as broken telephone because <laughs> what arrives at one room may not be the same message that left the previous one. And you're trying to coordinate command in the fog of war. So that and sand table war games was gaming to me. And then there were board games that you played with the family, all sorts of them. But there was no such thing as role-playing games. So D&D came along later. And around uh, when I first came across D&D myself in 1975 with the three booklets, they weren't in a little white box then, they were three booklets. And I, I read it and thought, no, this is a great idea, but no, there's just going to be huge arguments at the gaming table about what happens. Na na na, And I put them away again. Then Greyhawk came out and I said, whoa, wait a minute. This is better. Greyhawk, the little gray booklet. You know, not the world, the little gray booklet. 
brown booklet, whatever. And uh, with, the, with the beholder on the cover, ooh, and there are beholders and there are thieves as a character class. And oh, this is interesting. But still, no, it's not enough. But then a D&D monster manual came out and it had all the monsters, both new ones, fantastic ones, and the ones from myths and legends all scaled together. Oh, this is really cool. So I quietly changed the fantasy stories I was writing in the realms so that they would match this because it was like as if somebody had given the mechanics manual to monsters. And then when the player's handbook came out, wow, Jack Vance's fire and forget magic system perfectly. Oh, this is wonderful. Okay. Everything I write from now on in fantasy matches this. I don't call the spells the same thing. I don't refer to game terms, but now this gives a structure to my writing. I'm not cheating by having, you know, the, the, the wizard be a machine gun of spells. I, I, the, the game has given me the, the sort of rule system, the backbone. And then I discovered Dragon Magazine. Um, for me, it was downtown in Toronto at a, a long lost store called Mr. Gameway's Ark. And I came to Dragon, ooh, around the early teens. I was buying it monthly from issue 19 onwards. And I decided that this was really cool. I would write stuff for Dragon if I could. So I wrote, a, a game came out from TSR called Divine Right, a boxed board game. And it had two obvious flaws in it. It had a different number of armies on the punch-out counters for Shukasim, the, the kingdom of Shukasim, as the rules said Shukasim had. Also, it had rules all the way around the edge of the fold-out game board. And one of them was for a place called Greystaff, which you could sacrifice armies at to get monster spells. And they sounded really cool, except the rule ended in mid-sentence. So there were two, <laughs> yeah. So there were two obvious things to fix. So I, I, we played Divine Right, my friends and I. So I wrote a rata for it. In effect, here's what we would do with the rules, and here's why. And I sent it off to Dragon. They accepted it right away, but they held it for a theme issue about Divine Right, which turned out to be Dragon Thirty Four. But they also had a thing in Dragon called. Dragon's Bestery, which was a resurrected featured creature. And it said right on the bottom in the tiny type, you will be paid 25, 25 American dollars. Whoa, that's money to a little kid. Um, and anything printed in this page is, is as official as anything in the monster manual. <gasps> I can write official stuff for the game. So I started writing up monsters as fast as I could and sending them off. Um, the Cursed in Dragon 30 was the first one. I said, wow, they published it. So I wrote another one called The Crawling Claw, and it appeared in uh, Dragon 32. And I was typing on my dad's underwood and mailing them off, and I once mailed off a monster, and 16 days later, it came back to me in my printed copy of the magazine. Printed. I said, Wow. They are desperate. They'll take anything. <laughs> they have no monsters. So I just started writing monsters, and became known as the monster man around the TSR studios because I was then piling in monsters. So they now had a backlog. They loved me. Um, then I wrote my, the thing I really wanted to write, which was the thing about forgotten realms, the gates between the worlds. And that became from the city of brass to dead orc pass. I don't make up the titles. They do. Um, in dragon 37. And I wrote this huge long article referencing all these fantasy 
works that I loved, like The World of Tears by Philip Jose Farmer and um, Zelazny's Amber and so on. And I had footnotes in it because, hey, I'm the son of academics. You write, you put in footnotes. Off it went. Kim Mohan was the assistant editor of Dragon Man under Jake. And Kim Mohan was a journalist, and he was just floored, gobsmacked, and impressed because some little kid in Canada sent him an article with <gasps> footnotes. Holy gee. So I got this little letter along with my next tiny little check that said, hey, could you come to Gen Con this year? Could I? Yeah, I got on a Greyhound bus and went to Gen Con. It was fun. And when I got there, Kim took me for a little walk out because it was in Wisconsin Parkside. And he, and he took me outside for a little walk in the grass and said, so how'd you like to be a contributing editor? I said, great. Yes, of course. What's a contributing editor? <laughs> and they said, well, you'll get to write a lot of stuff for the magazine. I said, do I get paid? And he said, nah, that's the contributing part. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes, you will get paid for your articles, but no, you don't get a salary. But you see what it means is, we can use all your stuff all the time. It's sort of an excuse. So if, if all these gamers who have written all these articles are sitting there wondering why we don't publish theirs because they can't spell and don't know grammar and didn't finish their thoughts, but we publish you every month, they go, who is this jerk? Well, oh, he's a contributing editor. So that's the excuse. How'd you like to do it? I said, sure. And he says, good. Now I get to assign topics to you, which is why I filled the pages of Dragon for years because I was writing what Kim needed to fill in an issue which, by the way, is often a great way to get published in magazines. If you give the editor exactly what they need for the few pages they have left for that issue in between the ads, and you make their day easier, you get published. You have made their working day way easier. So that's what I did. And from my point of view, what I was doing was I was being fair to my players, because by then we were playing D&D &D as a group. And I figured everybody who played D&D &D in my circles read Dragon and devoured the rule books, but we didn't bring them to the gaming table. We just played. And the Dungeon Master would have the three core books to look up stuff if he had to, but the players would not bring their piles, oh crap. And what that meant is they had read all my articles in which I was putting new monsters, new magic items, new spells, and lore about the realms. And I, I figured this simulated something their, their characters might have heard. Because I sort of vaguely remembered what I wrote four issues ago. They didn't have it all memorized. Unlike the monsters in the monster manual, which they had completely memorized, which is why I was making new monsters. Because I would say, that you see this thing with these long eye stalks. You'd say, okay, it's either a gas spore or a beholder. Throw something at it from long range while from hiding, and its hit points will be, and, and it's, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so um, I was trying to inject role-playing back into it, which is the way I, I prefer to play D&D. &D. No rules, just ham acting. Um, or at least the accent is on the acting and role-playing, not on being a football quarterback and working it all out. So that is how you see, see why you, you know, ask me questions is dangerous. I just go, <laughs> you know, um, but that's how I started. And I was writing stuff for the, and at the same time, my father, this was in the era before photocopiers, before the internet, um, we had Gestetners and stencils. Um, we, a stencil was like a, a piece of paper with blue 
waxy backing on it with a second sheet of paper and you put it into your typewriter and you type and the imprint on the page that you're typing on puts the blue stuff on the page behind so you get a single copy. And a Gestetner is a thing where you can make multiple copies with this purple jelly and a roller. Anyway, um, uh, he was making copies of my stories and taking them to his colleagues at work, um, which was hilarious because they were enjoying the Mert stories because the Mert stories were basically slapstick fantasy uh, pratfalls as Mert ran around tripping over things, uh, wheezing, falling over, smashing things, um, swearing to himself like a sort of bargain basement Conan um, and screwing up and somehow surviving. And my father's work buddies loved it. And they'd say thing, things like, Bob, this is great. Get the kid to write a sex scene next. And my father would say, <laughs> he's six or he's <laughs> seven. Well, you know, field research. Ha, ha, ha. You know. <laughs> How about some car chases? It's fantasy, my father would say. Okay, you know, one of those ones where the wagon breaks free and it's careering down the streets. My father would come back and say, they want to see a wagon career. No problem, Dad. I'm ready for it. And I would type something absolutely terrible and he would take it away and they'd all have a good ha-ha over it. And so I was getting encouraged to get published. So there you go. That's how it all started. <laughs> that was one of the best answers I've ever gotten to a question. And I've been, I've been doing this for a few years, Ed. So thank you so much for oh, that. My pleasure. <laughs> I just babbled. When you, no, no, that, that was, uh, we were all sitting here just, just interesting, just, uh, just eating up every word. And I think our listeners are really going to like, uh, like that too. It's a, it's a good history and much better than the history that I was able to find about you on Wikipedia. So oh. I, I, I think it, uh, it had that, had that personal, personal touch there. Pure fiction. When I think about <laughs> <laughs> when I think about Dungeons and Dragons, Ed, and the more I research on it, it definitely influenced you and it influenced your stories. But I almost think you have maybe influenced Dungeons and Dragons more than it had an effect on you. Would that be a fair statement? Um, it sounds a, a bit, you know, pompous and self-serving to say yes, but I, I really well, you, do. You didn't say it. I, I said okay. I said it. So we're <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. I, I think I did because I think I add, you see, the thing is Gary and his crew were gamers, sand table war gamers at first and historical simulation gamers, you know, chain mail and so on. And you can see that in the early published Greyhawk stuff. You know, if you want to find out about the Pomarge or Furiandi, what you basically get is here's its heraldry, which, by the way, is why we couldn't publish the heraldry of the realms for the longest time, because at TSR, that's one of the ways they distinguished between the product lines. You know, if Greyhawk is heraldry, the realms can't have heraldry. Or at least you can have it, but just don't talk about it. You know, that sort of thing. They were just trying to keep them clear and distinct. But anyway, um, but if you look in the original Greyhawk thing, it's like, and here are the troops they can field. Okay, but... How are they governed? Oh, it's a, it's a monarchy. Okay. What's it like? If I walk down the street there, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. You've got this huge kingdom. You don't even know, okay, what are the trees? You know, where do the rivers flow? What are the industries? What are the imports and exports? What do people eat? Tell me about their recipes. You know, nothing. And what I was trying to bring to things is if you treat the world like it's real, then unless there's a magical reason otherwise to hand wave, Water flows downhill, usually from mountains to the sea. And 
there has to be a circle of life, you know, this thing eats, this thing eats, you know, that sort of stuff. And I was just putting in all the stuff that I loved from fantasy and then trying to make it make sense and feel real and how people could actually live their lives in this setting so that not everybody, oh, so it wouldn't feel like a, a stage set with the lights off and everybody frozen. So everybody's standing there with dust settling on their eyeballs. And then the heroes stride onto the stage. The light comes up. Everybody moves and makes noise. The heroes walk off and everything goes still again. If the, if the heroes, if the player characters are elsewhere, these merchants are still making money or losing money. Uh, people are still getting married, divorced, killing each other. There's famine. The livestock are getting moved from point A to point. Th things are happening. The world is alive. And I think I brought that into published products. Not that people weren't doing it before. And I think that's also why The Realms was such a hit. Because it's like, look, if we're going to charge you money for this stuff, we should do all the scut work that you don't have time to do because you're going to school or you're working you have a life, you're hungry, you got to do this, oh, you got to do the laundry, whatever, and then you've just got this precious time to sit down at the gaming table. I should have done all the work for you so you can just step into the world and lose yourself in the adventure. And if somebody says, well, what are they drinking in this tavern that we're meeting in? There's the list of drinks. Here's how much they cost, and here's what they all look like. You know, and then when you pee them out, this is what it looks like too. And this is where you go to pee. You know, I put I put privies and guard robes into the public and it's like, oh my gosh, no. And I was constantly up against um, the Midwestern, um, we must guard ourselves against teenage mothers from heck, um, self-censorship of the publisher because they didn't want to talk about sex. In fact, I once had a dragon article spiked because I said, you know, some versions of, of the Arthurian legend talk about the round table breaking up because um, Lancelot um, made love to Guinevere. And he said, oh, you can't mention that. That's extramarital sex, chop. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's legend. Everybody knows it. Yeah, but we can't mention it. You know, so, okay. So, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff about the realms about, you know, uh, the stuff that starts the Bible, you know, the begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so Okay, they were obviously going to bed together. Yes, but we can mention that. So all that stuff w went out of the realms. But I was bringing to the table this idea that it's an interconnected, detailed fantasy world that everybody, not just the heroes, but dragons and orcs and little goblins and little insects all live out their lives here. And I'm trying to make it feel real and hang together. So I think I was bringing that to the table and the level of detail. I mean, some gamers don't like that level of detail and that's fine. Play the game the way you want to play it. But I feel better if I've provided it. You can ignore it. It's, it's the, you know, you can walk into a store and stride through 15 aisles of fishing tackle because you don't fish. But if you had to stride through 15 aisles of fishing tackle and then there's another five aisles of hunting jackets and then there's another five aisles of boots, you don't go out of there thinking, oh, that's a miserable excuse for a store. You go out there thinking, holy crap, they put a lot in that store. Well, that's what I'm trying to do with the realms or anything I work on. I want you to feel that there's more than we could squeeze into the pages, that it's a real and it expands out there. And I still work on the realms every day of my life. And I still get questions from fans like, and, and I used to get this, uh, the same questions that I, I had sparring matches with TSR editors for. 
I'd say, okay, so the underwear, and they'd say, well, blah, blah, blah. we don't want to talk about the guard's underwear. I said, why not? He says, well, that isn't what this game is. And I said, look, first thing they're going to do is kill a guard or hit him over the head. Then they're going to strip him. And one of them is going to put on his uniform and try and sneak into the castle. If they take his clothes off to get the uniform, they're going to see his underwear or lack of underwear. So we should tell them that so it doesn't look like we haven't done our end of the work. Oh, you're weird. Yeah, but but <laughs> <laughs> but I would write it all. I would put it all in. And in the early days of the realms, they would say, hey, hey uh, we need you to write this thing called Waterdeep in the North. And I said, OK, sure. And I started writing and I started sending them reams of it. And they said, uh, it's only a 64 page product. And I said, eh, uh, 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 Waterdeep is this huge city. 64 pages won't even do one district. And you said and the north that's like the north american continent do you want the um auto association triptych you know that says well there are 50 50 states but not all of them are contiguous or the end or do you want me to bring them all to life oh yeah we want you to bring them all to life so i would just write reams of stuff and then the poor long-suffering people at tsr would read through this stuff. It would fill their cubicles. And they would say, okay, this bit here we're putting in the product. This paragraph here, put all these other things in that filing cabinet. We'll use them in later products. <laughs> and occasionally they'd say, Ed, stop. Just please stop. Stop setting us stuff. Or they'd say, Ed, we need you to write this thing. We need you to write it in three weeks. It's going to, production's going to need it in the fourth week. We need you to write to length, not, not write over because we don't have time to cut all your stuff. Could you write a complete working body rather than leaving us to chop organs out of it? Okay. So I will, I learned to do that. But at first I was just handing them reams of lore about the realms and I still do. And I still get asked questions, which means there are obvious gaps in the lore that people need for their campaign, the geology of the rocks for the mines. So you know whether dwarves or gnomes are going to fight over this area or leave it alone. All this stuff. I do all this stuff all the time. Oh, you want to know the, the, the swear words in Dwarvish? Okay, you want to know the bloodlines and the, the names, because you might have to make up a dwarf on the spot. And they say, what's his name? Bob. Uh, no. The last dwarf was saying, yeah, it's his cousin. You know, you, you don't want to be doing that at the, at the gaming table. You want to say, oh, yes, it's Mordrim, son of Gumbroth. Oh, it's Wardrim, son of Gumroth. And they all make little notes. And you think, yeah, Jesus. 20 years from now, they're going to pull out that notebooks and say, it's Wardrim, son of Gumroth. Ah, we know this guy. You know. <laughs> so when you know your players are doing that, as the DM, you have to do that too. So, ta-da. And I'll shut up now because otherwise, you know, another hour will go past while I go. Blah, 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 blah. No, no, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I'm not even going to go add here. I'm going to go Mr. Greenwood because that's how big of a geek I am here Mr. with all this. My so. dad. I, I, uh, fair enough. Fair enough. I'll call you Ed, but I'll get yelled sure. at later. So, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I've devoured your work for a long, long time. So uh, when the boys had, you know. Mentioned that you'd be on. I uh, threw a, a full fangirl fit and uh, had to had to push my way in here, kind of thing. So Hi. I'll say uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. no, I, you know I won't drool on the mic too bad as far as that goes. But um, I just I want to thank you for your work because I've been a huge fan of you for a long time. You're one of the few writers that uh, 
has held up over time in my experience. You know, I've got, uh, I started with Dragonlance back in the day and uh, started reading and um, kind of started going to the Forgotten Realms and whatnot. And uh, you've definitely held up a lot better than some of the other stuff. So, oh, well, thank you. Thank you for reading it because I wouldn't be here if people hadn't bought it, read it, and said, okay, where's the next one? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I would now, be on the, the footnote. The, Oh, yes. Yes. Well, see, and the fact that you've actually created this world that like I've splashed around in for the majority of my life is, uh, yeah, definitely a dream for me here. So now the the question I have for you more than anything else is um, aside from Forgotten Realms, you know, what's your favorite campaign setting with the whole D&D like Dragonlance, Ravenloft? You know, where do you where do you go to if it's not uh, Forgotten Realms? Oh, boy. Um, D&D or role playing in general? Let's. I'll go D and D just because. Yeah, that's a little, little uh, more laser focused. <laughs> mm. uh, I don't have favorites. I like to dabble in everything, and in fact, that's the whole point of the Forgotten Realms structure with its gates. Because there was a um, uh, the fantasy writer William Morris back in the eighteen hundreds. Um, he he wrote a a, a famous novel called The Well at World's End. And that and another novel called The Wood Beyond the World had this idea that there's many, many worlds out there and there are gates in all of them. They may not be like, speak friend and enter, you know, gateways and stuff. They can be things like if you step between the right two trees when the moonlight's falling on them, or if you step across that rock in the pool in that direction on Midsummer Night, You'll, your next step will land you somewhere else in another world. The rest of the year, if you step over that um, stone, you'll go ploosh into the pond beyond just what you saw. And and in, in these novels, which, by the way, um, Clive Staples Lewis in, in the Narnia books, he he um, hearkened back to, to those in a, in a few of the scenes. There is the wood between all the worlds, and it's a sort of place where you might meet Conan, you might meet a Viking barbarian coming the other direction. You might, you know, all of these fantasy people from different settings crisscross. And what I did in the original Home Realms is anything I liked from fantasy, Roger Zelazny's Amber books, Christopher Stashef's, um, um The Warlock novels when they came up, Messengers of Ashtu by Andy Offit, um, all sorts of things. Uh, Lord Calvin Rutherwind by H. Beam Piper. I would put their settings at the other side of a gate, and then you could step into them. So I have gamed in all of them. Uh, I think, to me, the realms is still my favorite, although I find Eberron very intriguing, because I, I was in at the um, the um, inception of Eberron, and I recall a few interesting dinners in the Bombay Bicycle Club in Milwaukee, which was the little bar um, at the front of the um, Mark Plaza later the Milwaukee Hilton, where we would sit and um, discuss things. And it was the idea of doing Professor Challenger stories at the same time as Victorian, almost steampunk, you know, and and, and so all of those found their way into Eberron. Um, Ravenloft, I love, but it's it's it was almost more a style of play than a, yeah. a place. And not only that, although I like it as a design thing and the mystery and the nebulous thing, I really, really hate as a player being scared and feeling that there's no way out and I'm trapped. 
It's like, hey, that's called real life. I sit down at my gaming table with my friends to escape that. Damn you. You know, <laughs> so yeah. there was and, and Dragonlance. I had watched Dragonlance unfold in front of me. In fact, the reason that TSR bought the realms to be the unified world for the second edition of the game is they had poured all of the company's resources into doing Dragonlance. And it was like, wow, can't we just buy one that somebody else has already done the work? Oh, <laughs> so that was me. Um, but I mean, I watched all that. And the, the problem with Dragonlance, which, and I don't mean this as a criticism, I think, the, the delight of Dragonlance is the luminous writing on the part of Margaret and Tracy that brought the characters to life. But the problem with Dragonlance is it's Tolkien's problem. We're going on a quest to save the world. We're going to save it against an evil that is so powerful we can't possibly defeat it, but we're going to. And then what do you do for an encore? We have saved the world. Oh, let's save it again. Same thing that Eddings in the Bulgaria and Malorion. How do, what do you do? You've got to save it a second time. In the case of Dragonlance, they could go around the other side of Kryn and say, you've never seen the other side of Kryn. So Zeb Cook here is doing a box set showing you the other side of Kryn. And we're going to do this all over again. But you see, the problem is, I wanted something that was the land of a thousand thousand stories in which your adventurers are only great if they force their will on the world and become great. They are one of countless number of groups that are having adventures and that way the world feels and that's what i like and so therefore the realms is my favorite because i was writing it for me not there was no dnd i was writing what i wanted for my wish fulfillment what lit my fire so i i created it and then i, I look at other things and yeah but they're not as much this or not that but that's because it's me because i wrote it to be what i wanted most of all and there are, um, because I'm not a big rules geek, I'm, I've played gaming systems, but um, I don't, and I, and I will sit back and devour a new role-playing game and love some of the mechanics, but I'm really interested in the world setting and the characters and the story, the backbone stories. I care about stories. I don't care about game mechanics. I can argue a lot with everybody else about, you know, falling damage and, um, should it be Thaco combat results table, this mechanic, but I frankly do not want to sit down at a gaming table to use my math skills because number one, I don't have any number two, that's called school. And that's what I'm trying to get away from. No, <laughs> I just want to tell a story. So I, I, although new gaming role-playing gaming systems, I may sit down and devour one and enjoy it. I'm not looking to change what I do into a new gaming system. I'll try something out. I've done innumerable play tests um, for different gaming companies and for various stuff at TSR and later Wizards of the Coast. And I will, you know, obediently run it this way. Okay, now let's run the same scenario that way and see what works and what doesn't work and write down your comments and all that stuff. But I really, if I want to have fun with my friends, we want to role play in the style that we've fallen into. And we want I, the realms is my preferred setting to do that. Yeah. But that's just me. How much of the the game time with your friends now and in the past? I've I've read stories about your old role playing sessions that are that are the things of legend. How <laughs> much of that influences your your writing and your creation of these stories, and in turn your creation of the world? Oh, um, greatly. 
the the fact that my players demanded the level of detail they wanted their character has characters to have day jobs they kept track of money and hey can i invest this i don't want to shove it in a jar and bury it under the the hearth because that's the first place they'll dig up looking for it when i'm not home you know can i invest it with somebody sort of thing and and therefore they needed to know how the world worked and they needed to interact with all of these non-player characters it was like um a sitcom with a recurring cast of characters you know they were they were touching base with all the people in their village constantly the role-playing sessions would sometimes go four or five hours and nobody would draw a weapon it wasn't about combat at all it was about intrigue it was gossiping with the locals finding out stuff passing on tidbits of information interpreting what you overheard hints here and hints there oh maybe we could you know making little alliances uh, getting together with um, local merchants and little cabals well you know um we could uh, deliver that for you. See how muscular we are? See how even the woman in our party shave? See how we got weapons bristling out? We could walk across the road with that bag of silver pieces. And unlike the last time when, you know, that guy just stepped out and took it from you because you're four foot nothing, we could just walk across the road and when he steps out, we'll just grin at him and he'll run away. And you'll get your bag of silver where it's supposed to go, huh? And for that... We would charge you only, oh, let's see, how much is dinner here? Uh, five gold pieces <laughs> or whatever. You know, they would, they would interact with the world. So because of that, and because everybody has to have a backstory and everybody has to fit into the world and it all has to work, there have to be flows of trade. And if there are flows of trade, imports and exports, then obviously you want something that somebody else has that is a scarcity where you are and you got something that you make too much of, whether it's cheese or barley or whatever it is that you can sell. And, and therefore, merchants are moving all over the place. And merchants on these long, dangerous treks, they need to be guarded. Caravan guards, and that's day jobs for adventurers and all this stuff. So that sort of thing, plus the fact that they were role-playing, they were speaking as their characters. Normally at our gaming table, aside from obvious player-to-player, -player, uh, pass the dice, player-to-DM, I've lived here all my life. Have I ever seen this guy before? You know, except for those obvious things, everything that came out of their mouths came out of their characters' mouths. So we were role-playing for hours. Now, people who aren't used to role-playing, it usually starts out being Monty Python, funny, self-conscious voices. The penguin on top of your TV is about to explode. <laughs> you know, and everybody, you know, has to get over that embarrassment. Or the 600-pound, fat, bearded guy says, Hi! I'm an elf maiden and bats his eyelashes and everybody, the other end of the table goes, <laughs> but I mean, um, once you get over that bit, you're just role playing your characters and the self-consciousness falls away and you now have a shared history together. And the same way that, you know, guys who fought together in a war and shared the same foxhole, they have this bond because they went through hell together. You, end up having this bond with your players. Yes, the things that you went through hell, it's an imaginary hell. You made it up for each other. But that doesn't mean you didn't bond, you didn't share it, which is why, you know, people are full of these stories at conventions. Oh, I got to tell you about the time that my party, we killed Asmodeus, blah, blah, blah. And you're going, yeah, uh-huh. And your eyes are glazing over. And they will see that. And if they don't want to get miffed about it, they'll say, oh, I guess you had to be there. And of course, that's the point. You had to be there. It makes their eyes light up. The memory is golden to them. But 
you didn't, you're not sharing the memory. You weren't there. But to them, that's the, you know, it's the, it's the good times we have together with friends, friends we sometimes make around the gaming table. And yeah, that affects my writing very much because I'm interested in people's emotions, the characters, why they're doing the things they do. They can bitch at each other. Um, they entire books I would fill with banter if the TSR and later Wizards of the Coast editors didn't say, uh, Ed, <clears throat> occasionally we need the plot, a plot, <laughs> a little bit of a plot to show through for a few minutes. So we care why they're having another fight. Oh, okay. I appreciate the, uh, the trade district, uh, gold, <laughs> but, uh, if you could get a little bit into the actual, you know, fighting. Yeah. Yes. So that's, yes. that's what has been the, the beautiful thing. And it almost sounds like we can kind of blame you for every RPG video game or whatnot with actual fetch quests. That's kind of what I, <laughs> well, yeah, I need you to go over here from here to get this to that. Yeah. It's like, ah, oh, all right. Well, at least we have a face to put to it now. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all my fault. Yes. Um, my name is Oliver North. I accept full responsibility. No. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> the, the thing is, um, I would, I, I love pratfall comedy scenes. The, uh, the things that Robert E. Howard, when he wasn't writing Conan, he wrote one of his other series was a gent from Bear Creek, Breckenridge Elkins, who's a sort of Daniel Boone character in, in early colonial America. And He's a good-natured muttonhead, and he tells the stories in first person, and they're endless recitations of, well, was how to, I was to know when I flanged him out the window that the horse trough was right outside, and how was I to know, you know, <laughs> they're like that, and, and I would love to write those scenes, and usually when editors sat on me, I'd try and combine them all, so I'd have the chase scene. You know, I'd go back to my father's, oh, yeah, the coach, the runaway coach. And I put the sex scene in the chase scene. So they're trying to make love in the coach and they're bouncing around off the ceiling and the walls. And then I put the fight scene where the thieves are bashing in the windows of the coach with daggers drawn, trying to kill them. And they're stabbing in all directions as this half-dressed couple is bouncing around trying to have sex and slugging it out with the thieves as the coach goes careering down. The, and, and the editor would say, um, Ed... Um, I love this scene. It's great. We're going to cut it out and give it back to you. Put in <laughs> another book. Because in this one, <laughs> we need... <laughs> so you see... <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I imagine your walls are just lined with nothing but stuff they've had to cut for later use and what have you. Oh, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, that was the other thing. I used to write the books um, for an adult audience. And this was in the days of fanfold printouts. You know, I'm, I'm older than dirt. Um, <laughs> so, uh, they, they, at TSR, they had the Mac room. The Mac room had one Mac in it. They were all using um, terminals to a mainframe, and then later on, the early IBM PCs. And they needed a computer that ac could actually handle print jobs without crashing, like more than one print job, more than, you know, one attached computer. So they had the Mac. And so they would get, in would go my diskettes and, I would print this, the, it would, the endless box fanfold paper, and then they would rip it off at the perforations and take it to the cubicle to read. And they'd be reading away, and they'd come to a sex scene, and they'd just tear across the perforation, flip, flip, flip to the end of the sex scene, tear across again, because it wasn't going in the book, the published book. 
they would take my manuscript, put it on their desk, and they would stand up in their chairs in the cubicle and begin to read the sex scene aloud to everybody in the cubicles around as entertainment. And so I started uh, embellishing my scenes to give good entertainment in the TSR offices. But you and, and they also serve the what I call the sacrificial lambs thingy. If you put in some really egregious stuff that they, oh my gosh, we can't, oh, and they tear that out, they might let your mild-mannered stuff, like orc swear words and stuff, go past and get into the published book. And I had to stop doing that when they had a junior editor once who let them all through <laughs> in the print. <laughs> <laughs> that technique uh, uh, is still used today, believe it or not. Yeah, uh, no, a I'm lot sure. of... Uh, not not only in, in in books, but definitely in video games. I know uh, South Park creators Trey and Matt, uh, also here from Colorado, do it all the time. Mm. They will put in one of the worst jokes ever because they know they'll take that one out and let them keep the tame one. So you might have uh, you might have patented this. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm sure it was wasn't new with me. I'm sure the Hollywood scriptwriters were doing it long before I came along. <laughs> but but no no, it's it's just we all fall into the same bad habits. Because authority, <laughs> I look at authority and I see a nose to be tweaked <laughs> and pants to be kicked. But um, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, that's I think how all of us are at some point in time. But um, I think, like, obviously you're a gamer. I mean, you know, we're we're definitely getting that all day long here. But um, now, are you are you a video gamer at all, or? Board games or anything like that, aside from the RP? Or? Oh, yeah. Board games galore. And I love gorgeous board games where the board itself is gorgeous and they're a strategic, you know, they, even at its most rock bottom level, like, say, diplomacy, you know, there's still areas on the board that are of strategic importance. And if you give me a, a gorgeous board that has interesting stuff, um, I, I have a, I have a German game from Lorien called Ringgeister, which is like Lord of the Rings. And it has all these trails that wander all over the map. And there are hexes it's a, it's a fold out game board, but there are hexes in the middle of the board that a particular spell makes you lift up the hex and rotate it. So all the trails that led this way a moment ago now lead that way when they go to the hex and that sort of thing I love. So I love, um, board games of all sorts, but I'm not so interested in the Snakes and Ladders or Candyland, you know, plain track game that might have enthralled me when I was three. Um, I love games like... I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a Battle of Britain game from West End Games, uh, a solitaire uh, solo play game where you play the, the British player defending against waves, endless waves, the Luftwaffe. And you're forced to make the horrible decisions they would have had to make in real life. There's there's another um, SPI game called Winter War, where you play the Germans in occupied Finland, in which the Russians are just charging at you and have 10 times your forces, and you're just trying to defend. How do you defend? And there are all sorts of cool games with neat mechanics. There's a... Um, my players would go up to my cottage um, once a year for a gaming weekend. And Jim Clark, um, one of my players, would 
known as Gene to us would, would bring up the stupid Gene game. He would always bring up, you know, something we could play regularly like Squad Leader or something. But he would also bring up a neat game he'd found. And one of them is a game called International Oil Man, which is basically monopoly mechanic with bankers and so on, except that you're trying to drill for oil. And it's the board is a square of blue plastic about four or five inches thick. And when you open the box, the board entirely fills it. And the top of the board is a pegboard with a map of the world on it. And you get a grease pencil in the game and you just draw your claim on the globe. And then you pay the banker so much for these oil wells, which are these little plastic things that you stick down the pegboard. And you don't know how deep your well will be and therefore how much money it will earn you until you drill. Some of them are duds, they're dry. And the, it changes from game to game because inside that big, thick square of plastic are a whole bunch of irregularly shaped little pieces on hidden pintles. And before you play the game, you just shake the square board and put it down on the table. So you never know which oil wells are deep. You know, the entire mechanics of the game are built into this plastic box. And it's a, it makes for a brilliant game because you're not thinking about rules. You're not looking up rule books. You're just playing. And everybody can just stare at it and get it right away. So little kids can play it with their grandparents and everybody sort of gets it. And I love all sorts of games like that. Computer games, not so much because I never had computers in my youth. Um, okay, nobody had computers in my youth, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was ENIAC. And I was going to say, you mentioned NORAD earlier, but yeah. I didn't know you had that type of access. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no, the, my, my father was a radar tech for... Um, um, the um, mid Canada and pine tree lines uh, for the, you know, intercepting uh, Soviet missiles over the pole, you know? Um, but, but no, that uh, when computer games came along, um, I had a Mac that, which was my, um, my um, advance for Spellfire. It came a year after Spellfire was published, but you know, slow boat, but I, they, they sent me a Mac to write on cause they wanted me to write on a computer, not type it because when you typed it, all the ladies at the secretarial pool in Lake Geneva had to input it. And that was really unfortunate because they would take, Prithee, good my lord, dost not thou how I trow? And they'd stare at it. And then they'd go, Dear sirs, to whom it may concern. And they'd turn it into American <laughs> business English because they were secretaries. They, and they didn't know games. They were hired from a secretarial pool. You know, uh, as per your letter of Tuesday past, we would like to purchase 16, 16 singer sewing machine, you know, <laughs> and, and they were changing my prose to American, you know, merger takeover. Ah, so uh. which, which not only did I hate the poor people at TSR, the creative teams hated too. So they'd say, Ed, why don't you just like, you know, write it on a computer? I don't have it. Oh, here, we're sending you a computer. So, but in the early days, games might get developed on a Mac, but they were sold to be played on PCs because that was the installed base of game computers. So I had tons and tons of games given me that I couldn't ever run. They were like expensive paperweights. And then by the time I was into gaming, they were of two or three sorts. Solitaire card games, Brickles and Pong and the various things, and first-person shooters. And first of all, I don't have time to invest in getting killed by bosses 532 times. And Castle Wolfenstein, which is one of the early ones that I was handed, 
the pixels were so large and square, you literally didn't know if you were hitting somebody. You know, you just would track across somebody until they started turning red. And they'd say, well, I guess I've got them now because you were staring at the screen and, oh, God, I hate this. This is so primitive. I want photorealism. I want things to move like in real life. I want what we're starting to finally get now. <laughs> you know, um, but so and that plus the fact I had no time because I had a full time job. I'm just commuting 100 miles to work and 100 miles home every day. I was living in an old farmhouse by then, which was falling apart. So when I got home every night, something needed fixing. Plus, we had to eat. Plus, we had to sleep, fall into bed, nooding. And plus, I was writing umpteen stuff. I didn't have time for computer games. They, they, they are time hogs. They suck your life away. So, oh, yes. Yeah, whereas a game in a, in a, uh, a board game, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, you can leave set up on a table and close the door and no one will disturb it. The... Um, the gaming stores of my youth in Toronto had huge, huge sheets of galvanized steel on the wall behind the, behind the uh, checkout desk. And they would have one of those huge games, Fortress Europa, or one of those other SPI games that takes a uh, drag nach Austin, one of those that takes eight hours to do one turn. And they'd have these little counter magnets, counterclip magnets that you could purchase, which would hold the individual units and they'd be stuck to this metal thing. And you'd come in, they'd say, have you got half an hour? And you'd say, sure. He'd say, want to move the, uh, the American Expeditionary Force up there? And you'd spend half an hour chatting with him as you moved all the units. So the game would take months to play, and everybody who visited the store would have a hand in playing it. But you could leave it set up. Those were cool. But the computer games, the, 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 there were some fun ones like Leather Goddesses of Phobos and stuff like that, um, which were, you know, which were of the pick up lantern cannot pick up lantern oh drop stick stick dropped pick up lantern pick up lantern oh, okay <laughs> um but i mean i wanted the computer games to do something more than my friends and i could do around the table and when you're role playing around the table with really creative people who could sing who could put on funny voices who can really act without necessarily ham acting computers are lagging way behind for most of my earlier years they just don't measure up so i never got into the hang of it i would i still think, think they lag behind though uh, based <laughs> on what i've heard about your your role-playing sessions i don't think i get anything even on a modern video game that compares to sitting down at a table with you ed oh gosh <laughs> thank you i <laughs> <laughs> couldn't you be a pretty girl no. <laughs> <laughs> only on the weekends ed. Yeah. only on oh. the weekends i oh, have to okay. ask myself the same question ed oh, so okay. <laughs> No, no. Uh, thank you for saying that. But, but yeah, that, that's the thing. Um, one, Jeff Grubb, who used to be my, you know, um, bosom buddy partner in crime at TSR, working on the realms, when he went to work for various other gaming companies who did do computer games, he would occasionally send me, okay, here's a link to a level we haven't opened yet. Could you just walk around it and explore it and tell me if it ever freezes, if you ever get like a white space? If anything ever like hangs your computer when you try and do something, I love doing that because I wasn't racing around having things try and kill me every, th you know, 30 times a second and the, the screen flashing and little numbers going off and I had to run over a banana to get points or something like that. I could just walk around and look at the beautiful uh, drawings and the, the renderings and go, oh, this is really cool. What happens if I go down there to that little pool? You know, which is why games like Mist and so on, I actually enjoyed. 
because I was getting to explore and figure things out and marvel at the beauty of things instead of kill or be killed at top speed. Because, you know, I'm, I don't want to get repetitive strain injury. I don't want to mash the keys on my computer down so hard and fast that I have to replace a keyboard each week. Um, just, you know, to shoot faster than the other guy. That's not my idea of fun. I could admire people who can do it, but I always find myself looking at six-year-old kids who are killing all the space aliens. And I think, oh, great. Well, okay, if we ever get invaded by space aliens, just round up all the six-year-old kids in, you know, the nearest school and we'll be safe. They'll shoot everybody down. Cool. But I don't want to play game, that sort of game with them. I want my game to be a storytelling adventure. I want there to be mystery. I want there to be romance. I want there to be um, those little scenes where somebody can defy somebody, you know, where it's going to be certain death. You shall not pass. You know, I want those moments. I don't want the kill, 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 kill. How many points did I get? Oh, good. I just grew. Okay. I must've gotten more points. Kill, 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 kill. You know, it's like, yeah, why are we doing this? I mean, if I have to commute to work on a busy highway, I'm doing that every morning. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> now, of course, there's occasional time when I'm commuting in the morning where I go, where's the, where's the gun on this thing? I want to blow this guy right in front of me, right off the pavement. I want to see that car cartwheel and explode. Uh, just like just like in the computer games, a car rolls over and it explodes in three seconds. No, they don't happen like that in real life. They just scrape along on their roof until they come to a halt. I was going to say, it sounds like you've got personal experience there. <laughs> <laughs> cough. Uh, cough, cough. Yes, no, well, never, you know, never. You, me, and the uh, internet. Uh, no. <laughs> no, no, never well, seen yeah. it before in my life, officer. I have no idea how I came to be in this back seat <laughs> with her underneath me and none of us with clothes on. I have no idea. <laughs> We're back to the carriage all over again. <laughs> yes. See, and that's the thing I've always loved about your writing because, you know, it's it gives some flesh to it and it, you know, I actually feel invested in the characters, you know, and that's that's been the biggest thing because, you know, a lot of the the stuff you get nowadays is just, okay, you know, like you were saying, you know, we, we went and did this and then, you know, we saved the world and then our children are saving the world. No, you know, like, give me like, you know, the actual intrigue and the heartbreak and the, you know, the loss of an actual character where it's not everyone lives forever, you know. That's, yeah. that's one of the beautiful things about it, where you, you're emotionally invested and you're like, yeah. that son of a bitch killed my character. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. Exactly. If you care about the characters, if it matters to you, then what you do in a gaming session matters. I mean, if people can get angry in real life or cry in real life at the gaming table because things matter so much to them, then the game is memorable and they will... Years later, when half the people they played with are dead and gone or halfway around the planet and they never see them anymore, they will remember it fondly because it mattered. It, you built something magnificent together and you cared. If you, if you don't care, why bother? And, and that was the problem I had with a lot of the computer games. I couldn't get into it. Or I was having to wrestle with a keyboard and a joystick or something. It was like, oh, for God's sake, I just want to play a game. Took you completely out of the experience. Yeah. No, and I used to play I, with those, um, um, the manhole and cosmic Osmo and, um, the caves of Dr. Pseudo and those other games that Cyan did, because you could, you could do weird things. You walk into a room. Oh, what does this do? What does that do? Oh, cool. You know, and you would just play. It was like, it was like being a little kid, except you could make messes on the computer screen. They weren't messes in real life, you know? 
that mum wasn't going to kill you for. You could smash yeah. walls, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure you 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 know this, but you are part of, of video game history. You are aware of that, right? Because the first ever Dungeons and Dragons game with graphics, Pool of Radiance, mm-hmm. is a Forgotten Realms game, Ed. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. I, I was writing um, <laughs> titles for the tomes in the library for that game, and also for the Baldur's Gate games. If I don't know if they made it. I don't know if they ever made it into the finished game because all that stuff grabs memory in the computer. But yeah, we were writing titles um, for all of the books that you could pull off the shelves in libraries. And I would write page one or page 36 of at random of so you could open it and actually read it. And, and that was, again, adding detail in the background. And I would say things like, yeah, but why do we have to rescue the princess? Does she want to be rescued? Or did she like maybe engineer this herself? You know, is she going to turn around and say you again? Or you're not adventurers, are you? Did my father send you? You know, <laughs> so I wanted to always know the reason behind why things were happening. The the intrigue, the wheels within wheels. That's That's my payoff, which is, again, why computer games are starting to get there now, but certainly weren't there when I was young and energetic and had time to play games. I wanted to sit down with my friends, usually around a board. I mean, if I wanted to be yawningly bored at games, I would sit down with my grandparents and play cribbage, euchre, or canasta. And they were so mind-numbingly bored by their own games that they would love to have me in as because they knew I didn't know what I was doing. So I would add some entertainment to the game. Whereas my grandfather would deal out the cards for four-handed euchre and he would deal them face off, face up. And then he would look at them and say, you would have won that. You would have won that. You would have won that. And he'd gather them again and shuffle them and hand them on to the next person. <laughs> they didn't even bother to play the round because they were so bored. I want my games to be like intriguing, interesting. I mean, I used to watch my grandfather for that very reason. At, around at, while playing euchre say i'm going it alone and if i wasn't playing in the game i'd sneak around behind him as a young kid and look at his hand he didn't have a single card in his hand to go it alone what's he doing this for he's crazy no he's so bored he's gonna bluff his way through it to see how far he could get and that's what i want my games to be exciting not oh yay incipient boredom i'm now gonna flip the table over just because i'm bored or I'm not going to, you know, pick up my drink and pour it over the head of the person next to me because I'm bored. That's not fair to the person next to me, and it's a waste of a good drink, you know. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I know a lot of that stuff is just, you're right, with uh, with the computer games we're getting now, we're getting, you know, a lot of dialogue options and whatnot. But yeah, it still fails to capture that just awesomeness of sitting around with your friends or people you don't even know and just making things, you know, kind of happen and Awkward silences and eye contact, you know, all that good stuff. Sure. I mean, we grow up playing and, you know, we, 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 we play make-believe games. We play in the sandbox. We, and then we get kicked out of that by society. We have to be serious. And one of the things you can do at a gaming table is start playing again. You, you have a rule structure. I mean, so people know, oh, this guy isn't going to go outside and grab a handful of um, um, dog dew and throw it over my head you know, or, you know, up in the sandbox on me, we know the sort of basic rules. We're going to sit around and we're going to portray characters. And this is basically how the framework works. Okay. So we can feel like it's a fair game in quotation marks, but we can just, we're just still just playing. We're, we're having fun 
telling a story together and it's unfolding and hopefully surprising us along the way. And that I think is the beauty of role-playing games. It's not, oh, I get to win. The game has a winner and it's over. Nah. Instead, it's like, it's a story. You get to step into another episode of the story. Wasn't that cool? And I, I, to me, that's the big payoff. That's why it will never end. And that's why, you know, I like writing fiction and stuff to go with the gaming. Because I can, in the fiction, I can dwell on things that there isn't time for at the gaming table. So at the end of one of my novels, you know how to speak like a high court lady in Cormier, or you know the card games the nobles play, or whatever. Something that you wouldn't stop play at the table to, to put into a gaming session. But if it's in a book, you can just swipe it and use it for color at the gaming table. And you're going to be down here for Cobalt Con, right? Oh, I'm going to be virtually. Virtually here yes. at Cobalt Con. Yes. Okay. I will be sitting right where I am now because the one of the other thing is I do have a day job and I have a wife who's over 80 and I am her nurse. So in the old days, she could accompany me and we could jet set all over the world to cons. Now I'm tied a lot more to home and I have to sort of sneak out. <laughs> the cons. And so that, that has in some occasions meant hop on a plane, dash halfway across, you know, the continent, spend four hours at a, at a con, jump back on a plane, dash back again in time to make dinner, you know, <laughs> but there are certain places in the continental US of A, because I'm in Canada, that aren't hubs. So for that means changing planes two or three times, there's no time in the day to do that and get back in time. So you know, I can't visit as many conventions in person as I used to. I used to go to tons of them. I loved it. I love driving there, not because I didn't like flying, but because when you drive there, you can buy 40 games and cram them in the car. <laughs> you can't do that in your airplane luggage. And when you go through customs and they say, so what did you buy? And you hand them this list with all the prices and then show them the big box full of games and you beam at them. And they go, this guy's crazy. And they let you in. <laughs> you know, you think Wizards of the Coast would have bought you your own plane by now. I think so, too. Where is my kidney-shaped swimming pool full of champagne and starlets? Oh, drowned woman. No. Uh, where is my Learjet? Yes. Where's my yeah, vertical takeoff and landing jet? Yeah. Where's my Skull Island to land it on? Hey. Yeah, my goodness, there are all these things I've been done out of. I guess I'll have to write more books. <laughs> please, please do. Well, okay, yeah. We want to thank you, yeah, for not only coming to Cobalcon virtually, but for joining us this evening. I, I'm not going to speak for my, my two colleagues here, but this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews, if not the most enjoyable interview I have ever done since I started doing this, Ed. And now Nick has me nervous about calling you Ed. Should I call you Mr. Greenwood, sir? Oh, no. <laughs> Then, oh, we're informal oh, now. Yeah, I'm Ed. Jeez. You can call me Nick. You can call me. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't. But no, no. no it, it, uh, you can just call me Hey You. I mean, you know, um, I, I feel, I feel um, uncomfortable in the role of elder gaming god, you know, because it's like, no, I'm just a kid. When are they going to throw me out? I shouldn't be here. You know. Um, but yeah, I, I used to get that feeling increasingly at later Gen Cons when uh, young gamers I'd met would bring me their grandchildren. And it's like, oi, 
I didn't have anything to do with this, did I? No. Uh, <laughs> but, but, the carriage but, saying strikes again. Yeah, yeah. But 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 no, it, it may be conscious of the passage of time. But no, and and yeah, I, I suppose, I, I suppose, in the in the way that we, that I was brought up, you you addressed older people than you as Mister and Mrs. You know, and all that stuff. But I still, I'm just dead. You know. Anyway, mm, yes. Hi. I'm, well, no, I, I, and what I was going to say, thank you so much for not only joining us tonight in the Bit Cave, but for creating a world and not keeping it to yourself. You created an amazing world that you're still creating and you're still writing on today, and you let all of us play in it. So hey. th- thank you so much for, for sharing your, your time with us tonight, your wonderful stories with us tonight, your wisdom with us tonight. I really appreciate it. And I know everyone at CobalCon is really looking forward to at least getting to hang out with you virtually. Sure. I'd love to. And thank you for having me. And thank you for playing in the realms. All of you who play in the realms make the realms richer and bigger by playing in it. And I love that. That's, that's why I basically said, yeah. Here, come on in. And it's worked out so well. 50 years, 53 years. Oh, my God. Later. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't have uh, ended it better myself here from the Bit Cave. I am Eric G. Hollis. Our guest tonight, Ed Greenwood. My co-host today, Nick Nick Gochis, and he hasn't said much tonight. That's only because he's making sure this episode sounds phenomenal. Tyler Runtrg Glaze, the chairman of the Soundboards. I, again, am Eric G. Hollis, here with our esteemed guest, Ed Greenwood. And this interview, unlike the realms, will not be forgotten.